This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we've got somebody new on Dreamland, and I am so excited. Uh, Jeff Kripal is crazy about her book and her work, and Jeff Kripal, of course, and I are dear friends. The book comes loaded with all kinds of uh uh, uh, acknowledgements. Mark Gober, uh, an end author of an end to upside down thinking, and that's really what this is about in a, a profound way. Uh, Jeff again, Julia Mossbridge, the author of Transcendental Mind. Now, we are talking to Mona Sabani, PhD. Dr. Sabani is a cognitive neuroscientist. She holds a doctorate from the University of Southern California. She completed her postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt um, at, with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She's a former research scientist at USC and was a scholar with the Sachs Institute for Mental Health, Law, Policy, and Ethics. She has been featured in the New York Times, Vox, and other media outlets, and we're basically going to ask her, what in the world are you doing here and on Dreamland? And folks, I'm going to tell you right now, the answer is worth listening to, and it is truly extraordinary. Uh, this We are looking at an extraordinary life being lived right before our, our eyes. Welcome to the show, Mona. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Okay, you can send me the $20 on PayPal now. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Um, What happened to you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell tell us first about the Mona of before it happened, and then we're going to get into what happened, and we're going to be talking about her mother. (laughs) Okay, so tell us about the Mona before it happened. What were you doing, and how did you think about the world? Yeah, so I was a very traditional, I mean, I still consider my, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. Um, I was traditionally trained academic scientist. I you know, had adopted the scientific materialist worldview, um, which we kind of grow up in that. It's what we hear in mainstream everything. Um, And when I went to get my PhD in neuroscience, that was definitely a further indoctrination. Um, I think, especially the neurosciences, um, science in general tends to be, you know, skeptical of (laughs) anomalous events, but neuroscience in particular, because we study subjective experience and the brain and all that. um, When you come out of grad school, they they train you to think that everything is um, that you interpret as coincidence um, is, is just that. It's just a coincidence that your brain is a coincidence detector, that it looks for coincidences. It's a meaning maker, so it makes meaning out of those coincidences, and there's no external meaning to the world. It's all in your mind, and that impossible things are impossible. And so when you come out, um, I think I had, when I went into grad school, I was a little more, you know, um, curious about the universe, and I always was interested in coincidences and circumstance, and I think I had a lot of awe 
for, you know, certain events or just life in general, I guess. Um, and then by the time I left graduate school, I felt like some of that was beaten out of me. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I, anything that I may have thought was meaningful or, you know, if like a really big coincidence would happen in my life. Whereas I used to like relish in that or kind of just, um, marinate in the field, you know, like meaningful feeling of, wow, this is spectacular. I think by the time I left graduate school, um, I just thought, oh, that was just, you know, whatever my brain correlated that event for whatever reason, and it's meaningless. And I was very, um, you know, arrogant as a lot of scientists are. And I felt like our worldview was the right worldview that with rationality and logic and reason, um, if everyone could just focus on only science and that abandon religion and spirituality, then the world could finally get to where it needs to go to improve, hum you know, humanity, I guess is what I thought. Yo. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I was. And you go from there to writing a book called Proof of Spiritual Phenomena. A neuroscientist discovery of the ineffable, ineffable mysteries of the universe. Proof yeah. so, of spiritual phenomena, not, not anything less than proof. Uh, Fascinating. So the, the publisher chose the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the publisher chose the title, but the book's really convincing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it really was more like my search for proof of, um, and I'll explain. I mean, uh, I had certain things happen to me that caused me to, you know, question my worldview and think that maybe we didn't have all the answers, um, or we didn't have a complete model of the universe through science. Um, and so because of that, I went on this kind of quest to find more answers than I was given in science. And so what happened was the way that this, I, I, I think of it now as this like forest that there's all these different entryways and different pathways and different people come in from different paths. And so my path was that my, I'm Persian, um, that's my cultural heritage. And in our culture, as in many other cultures in the world, we have a tradition of using, you know, tea leaves or coffee grounds, um, thick coffee grounds, like Armenian coffee um, in a cup, flip it over, dry it. Um, we use it for divination. So you, if you can get a skilled reader, they can um, intuit things about your life, past, present, and future. And I never paid any attention to this. I didn't believe in it. Um, and, but my grandmother was very um, allegedly skilled in this art and she taught my my own mother and so my this would be going on you know in the background of our family parties just kind of I never uh, <laughs> I never paid attention to it but it was always going on people would come to my mom not like she didn't do it as a business just family friends um periodically and when I was in graduate school and I would I would go home on the weekends um my mom started reading for me uh, just casually, um, you know, like I would drink coffee and then she it would dry and she would just look at it and tell me things. Um, and I would, you know, I would like to get to this a little later uh, okay. because what I want to do now is to explore. Suffice to say, we will find out later exactly why Mona is here and, uh, and, and, and is, has come out of the... Now, I wouldn't say you've come out of the mainstream of science. That's not fair. You're still very much a scientist. 
and uh, but that you've I think you've seen that it is it is a group of methodologies and techniques that does not necessarily lead to a valid worldview. And uh, now, what I would like to know, though, as we go along, is your idea of how the brain processes the unknown. And I'm, I want to talk about things like uh, uh, the uh, oh, the that gorilla experiment and so forth. Because in, on this show, you're talking to a lot of people who live with the unknown. I do. And most of my listeners, a great number of my listeners do too. Not everybody, but a lot of them. They have experiences with, of perceptions that their brains can't process. What is that? What happens to us when we are face to face with something the brain cannot process? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So a lot of times when we think of it as frameworks, and so if you're, uh, you know, let's give this example. When you're talking to someone and they mention something that you're not familiar with, a lot of times it will just go over our head. Sometimes you don't even hear it because you don't have the concept for it in your mind already or a framework for it. Um, and then when you learn um, a concept, sometimes your brain kind of adjusts its, um, updates its its knowledge database and can fine tune your filter to, it's like, oh, we've learned this new piece of information. Um, and then it can kind of search for that in your environment in the incoming you know, sensory information that comes in to see, like it's a new piece of information that it's excited about it. It's trying to get more information to continue to build the model. And that's um, like one of those psychological effects you hear about um, where people learn something new and then they see that all the time or hear something about that all the time. Um, and so sometimes the brain, so it, it depends a lot on the person and the context and what they're encountering. But sometimes you, it can go over your head. Like I said, if it's someone mentions a word you've never heard or a concept, you, you might not even hear it. It'll just go right past you. Um, which is, this is like a huge thing in communication. When people are trying to communicate new concepts, they have to find really clever ways to tie it to something the person already knows so they can um, process it. Then sometimes, um, let's say it's so big, you can't ignore it. You're face to face with it. Your brain scrambles to make meaning of it um, in, in any way that it can. And I don't have an exact like neural, I don't know the exact mechanisms that it uses. I don't know if anyone does, or maybe there's some neuroscientists that focus on this. Um, but yeah, it scrambles to tie it to something that they know. And that's why sometimes, you know, if you have a, your worldview helps a lot with that. So if, um, so if, as I was saying earlier, my worldview is scientific materialism. So if I encountered something um, that I was unusual that I couldn't um, ignore, then I would try to find uh, an explanation for it in my worldview or what I consider my reality, my ontological reality. So, um, and then uh, if you can't, <laughs> um, that's when you can become, uh, at least for me, I, I was spun into crisis thinking, uh, well, what my, you know, my understanding of reality doesn't have an explanation for what I have encountered um, what do I do? And I think that's where people's personalities or their life experiences can come in and kind of determine um, what what they do with that. I mean, you can 
if you're avoidant, you might just avoid it and move on. Um, if you're curious, you might ask questions and seek answers. Um, you, you might not be in a time in your life when you might be curious, but it's a bad time in your life where, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can, on top of everything, I can append my worldview. <laughs> so you're like, for now, I'll ignore it. So there's a lot of different factors, but yeah, the brain has um, different, it has to make meaning. It has to find an explanation usually. So it uses various methods to try to do that. Um, but it, it can be different for different people at different times. Making meaning is basic to our survival. We have mm -hmm. to make meaning. Um, we're going to talk about a few in a few minutes uh, a couple of things uh, as we explore experiences and beliefs and the way they work together or don't. There's something called the lucky charm effect. And then we're going to talk about a remarkable beast, an invisible gorilla. Free Dreamlanders, we will return. We're back. We're talking to Mona Sobani. Her website, monasobaniphd.com. That's M-O-N-A-S-O-B-H-A-N-I-P-H-D.com. You can keep up with Mona's work. She keeps the website up. Her book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, uh, perhaps overtitled by the publisher, I suspect Mona may think. If you had titled it, what might you have titled it? I had titled it um, Illumined. Because that's how I felt, <laughs> like a light switch had been turned on, that like I had been illuminated in some way, not like totality or the final version, but yeah, it felt like a light had been lit internally. So that's what I would have called it. We will be getting in a little while to a really extraordinary dark night of the soul. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit more about the brain and the mind and how this all works, because I, I am a person who has all kinds of unexplainable experiences. In fact, I'd say that a substantial part of my life is just living with exp experiences that don't have an explanation in the context of the, of the materialist paradigm. They don't. I mean, every day, literally every day that passes, I'm touched physically by entities I can't see. Mm -hmm. And uh, those touches are very loving, but they still shouldn't exist in the, in the world if the world is the way we have decided it must be since the Enlightenment. Okay, mm -hmm. let's talk about a couple of effects. Let's first talk about the lucky charm effect, and then we'll get into the, into the invisible gorilla. And these are little things, but they tell us something about what the mind does and doesn't do with what's coming in. So let's talk first about the lucky charm effect. Yeah, so the lucky charm effect is, it's kind of like the placebo effect, kind of, but um, it's where if you believe, like, like you're, somebody gives you or you buy some sort of charm or a crystal or whatever it is, and you believe that it imbues you with good luck, um, um, and they've shown this in studies. <laughs> so they'll divide people into groups and give them something. Um, 
and they'll tell them this is lucky or whatever. They find that people actually, the people who've been given the charm actually perform significantly better, let's say on a, on a test of some sort, like a memory test or whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and so we can find this, you know, um, anecdotally out in the population too. If you, you know, if you believe something um, to be helpful and lucky, then it is for you. And I think, um, so it, it's very similar kind of to the placebo effect. And um, as you mentioned, points to the power of the mind um, yes. and it's very strong connection to the physical body. Um, although, and even though people talk about it, scientists talk about it, we, physicians talk about it, there really is not a very good integration actually of brain, mind and body um, in medicine or in the sciences still. Although there's a lot of research, you know, a lot of interesting research showing that, but yeah, so it's just, um, if you, if you believe something, um, it does help your, performance or make you more receptive to risk. I think it also makes you more receptive to receiving um, luck if it's a lucky charm. You know, uh, I think I wrote a book called Jesus and New Vision, which explored whether or not the miracles could have worked. And in our world, they couldn't have. And I don't think they would even now if he came and tried to perform a miracle on you or me, it probably wouldn't work. But I think they worked very well in the time he was alive because the placebo effect was powerful. They believed implicitly in the gods and in the power of magicians, which they perceived Jesus as being a very, very powerful magician. And that amplified the placebo effect and made it a really curative effect. We call it placebo, that is to say, something that is that has no really eff efficacious content. But right. that's not true, is it? We could no, no. what if we could what if we could understand it well enough to revise, revitalize it? We might yeah. be able to throw all the pills out. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean I think it's a I think it's Actually, I think I never thought about this before all of this stuff happened, but, <laughs> um, you know, because you're so trained in that way to, oh, yeah, we got to get, we got to find the, the uh, pharmacological mechanism, you know, or whatever it is, the biochemical mechanism of what works and get rid of what's just mind. But of course, now I have a different perspective. Um, and I tried to um, fine tune the information that I take in <laughs> now and with that in mind, because what you um, believe, I mean, there's so many, there's so many studies on this and there's so many um, uh, case studies and case reports and anecdotes, which I think are just as important as um, like double, right. Uh, double blinded randomized clinical uh, trials. So I, so I kind of live in that way now. And I think it, cause your mind is very powerful and I, I agree with you. I think we should be leveraging it and studying it. Not, um, not dismissing it like, oh, it's just the placebo effect and we need to control for it and exclude it. Why would you not want something that's free and healing versus something you have to pay for, presumably? Well, exactly. You know, we have a, one of them, this website's full of fascinating people who come to it. And one of them is a, a, um, a man who, and he and his wife together, they were military people, and ended up spending days aboard a UFO in a very complex experience. He's interviewed on the show and folks, subscribers, you can listen to that interview if you, if you uh, wish to. 
In any case, uh, his wife, he reported recently, commented on the site that after they came back from this experience, he didn't have any real changes, but his wife obtained a powerful healing ability. And she was in the basement of a Catholic church at a, after church, and it, I guess at a at a social, and or it, maybe I'm not maybe I'm not getting the story perfectly right, but in any case, she was there, and there was a woman there with a particularly bad injury to a leg that had not healed well from an auto accident, and she healed the woman. And it was as surprised as anyone else about what happened. Mm. And, however, one of the other parishioners began screaming that this was the work of the devil because she hadn't called on Jesus before Mm. she did the healing. And they got out of there with their lives. But, wow! There's a lot of fear around this stuff. And you're going to find a lot of resistance in your own community. You probably already have. What? The, I mean, did you conceive your work being in jeopardy or anything? No, I mean, I don't do research anymore. And I never wanted to do traditional research like writing grants. And um, although I was working at a research center, but um, I've found, uh, I found, I just founded a startup with two friends and we're doing, um, it's a technology focused one. And I do a lot of consulting work and just hope that it's not a problem, but I've actually haven't, um, I've actually found more support than I haven't so far. I'm sure that could change, but, um, I really did try to, so since I'm coming from the same place that they are, and since that was old me, um, I I needed to have enough evidence, right, to like write this book or, and I feel like I did my research. I mean, I didn't put all of it in there, but um, so I feel like I can talk about it intelligently with them. And, you know, the, but here's the other thing. A lot of scientists have reached out to me since I've put this work out telling me about their own experiences, excited to have somebody to tell it to who has a similar background. Um, And so I'm sure many more will come forward. I encourage them to, because I love sharing stories. Um, And so I think what I'm, what I right now anyway feel really driven to do is to kind of, is that, is like providing um, a friendly face and a, open ear for people who were probably like me, who may have had things happen to them that they were profound and meaningful, but that they didn't have an explanation for, um, you know, from our worldview and, and talk to them about it and just kind of destigmatize it a little bit. And I found that to be true with most of my, you know, scientist colleagues that I spoke to for the book and since the books come out. So, I, I know that there's, that's always in the back of my mind. Obviously, that's been one of the things that's been hanging over me this entire journey. Um, and, you know, part of what caused my later identity crisis was just a lot of it was that, like, am I going to lose everyone I know? Or are people going to think I'm crazy? Um, and so, but, you know, I mean, just prepare the best you can. I mean, it's all, 
it's, there's research, there's books, there's people with shared experiences. And if you can't be open to that, sound, sounds like a personal problem. Um, so I <laughs> Yeah, I, I, think I agree with you. Now, let's, with regard to experiences, you know, one of the things that you illustrate so beautifully in your book and Proof of Spiritual Phenomena is the fact that we actually don't see our world if it's not as we expect it to be. Uh, tell us about the invisible gorilla. Yes. So there's this um, cognitive effect, the psychological um, bias called the selective attention effect. And this experiment demonstrates it um, really beautifully. It's basically that your uh, your brain can fine tune. It's kind of like a filter of the information that comes in. So it can fine tune that filter um, along a number of parameters. Um, but one is like an immediate goal that you have to do. So in this experiment, they had two um, like teams playing basketball. It wasn't really basketball, but they're like throwing a ball back and forth between each other. And the researchers ask the participants to count the number of times the ball is passed between people wearing a white shirt. And so people are so focused on this task. They're like counting it, they're focused, their brain has their goal. It's like, you know, um, filtering out irrelevant information. And then in the meantime, while they're counting, a man in a gorilla suit walks right through the game just like saunters through, stops, dances a little in the middle and moves on. And the researchers found that after, at the end of the experiment, when they asked the participants, um, you know, did you notice anything else um, about the video? Uh, you know, after they collect their counts of the number of times the basketball was passed, uh, many of them didn't notice the man in the gorilla suit walk through the game because their attention was so fine-tuned to their task. And so it's Thanks. really, uh, yeah. Amazing. Well, you know what? We let's let's. I have some good news and some bad news. The good news for subscribers is we're not going to take a break. The bad news for non-subscribers is it's time for a break. We'll be right back. In the third half hour of the show, we're going to be talking to Mona about some things that are truly extraordinary and a little frightening that involve murder, discoveries about her deep past, and a relationship with her mother. Is this is, but right now, I want to continue to build a kind of baseline. We're talking to an accomplished scientist who has taken a totally left turn away from the scientific community. And before we go on, I want to mention again, her book is Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, and you can reach her at monasobaniphd.com. That's S-O-B-H-A-N-I-P-H-D.com. She does keep her site up, so there'll be more interesting material there. Uh, now, you had in, your, in the book, you described two mentors, uh, which I thought were great mentors. One of them, uh, Brian Weiss, is an understandable. The other one came out of left field. It's Chelsea Handler. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what it was about Chelsea Handler that began your 
help to begin your journey of opening. And then we're going to talk a little bit about things like meditation. Uh, so, but tell us first about, about Chelsea Handler. Yeah. Um, so, so on my journey, I, which we can talk about later, but so there was a point in the beginning when I was kind of just curious about, um, psychic and intuitive readings. And so I was dabbling in that, but I wasn't doing any serious research or any serious thinking. Um, and I definitely didn't believe anything spiritual at the time. So it was just like a curious thing. Um, and just serendipitously, I was listening this, this was during my dark night of the soul. Um, I was not in a great place, but I was listening to Chelsea Handler's book. Um, it's called life will be the death of me. And she made, I loved the book. It was great. And it, um, I read her, her other books, which are just hilarious. She's actually funnier, <laughs> like as a written author than, um, than live, although she's, she's great live too. But, um, so I had read her other books. So I read this one thinking, Oh, I could use a laugh right now. And this book was really different because it's about her, um, you know, her disappointment with the 2016 election. And then her, um, she goes to therapy, which she was never open to. Um, and I, and she kind of has this personal transformation. And so I was inspired by the book. I just thought, Oh, wow. Like she used to be, you know, really hard nosed and, um, very, you know, not serious cause she's a comedian, but not the friendliest of, of people it seemed. And so she seemed to have this crazy transformation. So I listened to the podcast. It was like a limited six, maybe episodes. Um, and each episode was something different, like one with her neuropsychiatrist and, um, one on the Enneagram. And then, and then one of the episodes was she had Laura Lynn Jackson, who's a psychic medium on talking about this spiritual framework that she believes in, which, um, involved like school being, I'm sorry, earth being a school, uh, where souls come to learn lessons and karma and reincarnation. And, and she was talking about how she, um, as a, you know, perceives psychic and mediumistic information or energy. Uh, and she mentioned she had actually done some neuroscience studies. Um, and so I just, <laughs> at first I was thrown back to because, um, cause Chelsea Handler's a, a skeptic and I, she, and she talks about it in her book, she's like, Oh, I don't believe in anything. Woo. I don't believe in psychics. And then on her podcast, she, one of the episodes, um, was Laurel and Jackson. And so I was like, this is so weird that she has this woman on, but what's weirder is that the spiritual framework that Laurel and Jackson was describing was something I had heard in the psychic and intuitive readings that I had gotten, which I had brushed off. And as I was talking about earlier, when you encounter something you don't understand, which I did not, I had never encountered a spiritual framework like that. Um, you just ignore it. And I just kind of ignored it. And I had recorded these sessions and written them down. So I think I would write down like karma or, or like their soul group, but I didn't know what it meant. And I definitely didn't believe in it. And so it was just, there i had heard it but i didn't pay attention to it and then the, when i was listening to lauren lynn jackson explain it again i'm like oh this is so weird this is exactly what the intuitives told me um and then i started to wonder i was like do they all go to psychic school together is this like a something you're supposed to learn as a prerequisite like why do they all why is this the framework that they believe in um and so that's it's um that's how i started i listened to that episode i got excited i turned it up and and then in that episode, both of them, Chelsea Handler and Laura Lynn Jackson, mentioned Brian Weiss's book, Many Lives, Many Masters. And they didn't say, talk about what it was. They just kind of mentioned it like, oh, it's such a great book. Everyone should read it. 
And Chelsea tells this funny story of how she thought it was garbage and woo-woo and she got in a fight with someone over dinner who was telling her to read it. And like on a, right after dinner on a flight home, the book was like in the, someone left it on the plane. <laughs> and so she read it. And by the time she landed, she was like, everyone has to read this book. So then I ordered the book, uh, not knowing what, what it was about. They just said it's a psychiatrist case study. So I ordered it thinking, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. Um, and then it arrived. And of course, it was about past life regression. And I was like, what am I reading? <laughs> like, what is this? Well, and, this, is, this, then, is, this is one of the most fascinating parts of your story, is your discovery of past life regression of all things. Tell us a little bit about bit more about this. This is fascinating. Yeah, so I so I read the book, and um, I, you know, it's a short one story about his one patient that he couldn't cure using normal psychotherapy or any other of the normal methods. She had a range of phobias and anxieties and whatnot, and after a year and a half, he just couldn't cure her, so he resorts to regression, um, trying to find some trauma from her early life that she couldn't remember. And usually, if you can remember it and and kind of um, relive the emotion, you can have emotional catharsis and move past some of those issues, but it wasn't working for her. And so he regresses her and then says, go, you know, go back to the time of your, um, when the symptoms first arose or go back to the root of the problem. I don't remember the exact language. Um, and she goes back to a past life and then describes a past life, which in and of itself is not that interesting. But what I found interesting was that then she was cured um, of her, in the first session, whatever, her, I think it was like she was scared of drowning and um, it was a past life where she had drowned in a flood. And so when she comes out of the session, um, it was the, he cured her of that fear. And so he thought, well, nothing else has worked. We'll keep doing it. So he keeps doing it for her. And one by one, her fears and anxieties were cured. And so I was interested in that first by that aspect of it, just from a mental health perspective, like we don't have great models for mental illness um, in neuroscience. We don't, it's like, high, you know, it's, there's just a lot of information lacking. We don't understand a lot of it. And um, I just thought it, there's not a lot of great treatment options. So I was just kind of academically interested in this treatment. I just thought how fascinating that just retelling a story, which I thought, you know, was fantasy when I was reading the book um, and going through a, an emotional reliving of it releases the emotion and cures the person. So I was interested in it in that aspect. Um, but then by the end of the book, he's, he's an atheist or he was a skeptic and he's convinced by then, you know, and he says he goes to look up all this research. Um, and he describes that these master spirits, quote unquote, come through her and give him information that they couldn't have known about his life, about his son, about his father. And then that resonated with me because of the intuitive readings that I had had. And I was at this point where I was questioning, um, I was like, you know, we, they, they do seem to know really specific things, you know, intuitives will get like seven variables, right? On some event in your life. And you're like, statistically, that just doesn't even make sense. Like, how could they know? Um, but so when I read that in his book, I was, I was really interested in that. Although I def, I don't know if I was I didn't believe anything, you know, at this point, it would take a long time, <laughs> a lot of reading um, to open my mind, but it definitely peaked, got me interested. And I thought, oh, is this like a therapeutic technique that a lot of people use? Is it actually therapeutic? Are there um, published studies on it? Do people still use it? Does it only work because you, you believe in it? 
Um, so I just kind of got interested from both sides, like a basic mental health neuroscience side, um, and then also from the spiritual side, because this was the third time he describes the same spiritual framework. He's you know talks about the lessons you're here to learn and etc. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like the third time I'm hearing this thing, and now it's from a well-credentialed psychiatrist. And so I was just really, I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, but I got interested and curious and thought I have to know what all of this means. So it kind of started my journey into getting as many books as I can, reading as many things as I could, and trying to just understand what's going on. So uh, um, we end up in a situation where this is a school. I agree with you. I think I've thought that for most of my life. I've even had experiences that that, that, that early before I was involved in any of this stuff very heavily that indicated to me that this was a school. If I was, if you'd asked me when I was 20 what earth was, what the life was, I would have said it's a school. Uh, oh. but, so, you know, because of dream experiences and stuff I'd have, but here's the question I have. Mm. Where did we come from? Uh, why did we join the school? Or were we sent to it because that's not just a school, but a reformatory? I mean, you know, what kind of, excuse me, what kind of school are we dealing with here? Yeah, that was kind of my question too. When I was, at first when I was reading it, I thought, oh, I think I felt relief that there was an explanation and that it made, you know, there was a kind of an explanation. Like it wasn't the scientific materialist worldview where it's like, there is no reason for your suffering. You're just suffering. Get over it. Deal with it. Turn to what you need to, to comfort yourself until you die, which is that worldview. So at least in this one, I was like, okay, well, at least there's a reason. Like, okay, so I can, it was, it helped me psychologically reframe events in my life to be like, okay, what lesson am I supposed to be learning here? Is this a theme in my life? You know, um, maybe there is a purpose for this for down the line for me. Um, but then as I, and I still feel this way, I mean, it's not like I'm an enlightened being. I mean, I, every day I'm still like, God, I'm still here. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I think most of us are in the same boat. <laughs> it's like one of the lessons going to end. Um, so yeah, I mean, over time, at first it was a relief. And then over time I was like, I don't know, how much is this really, does it make me feel better <laughs> that the idea that I have to keep, if it's true, keep coming back and and reliving life and um, learning these lessons that I didn't learn in a previous life. Like it actually sounds kind of terrible. So <laughs> um, I don't know, but I do think on an everyday basis, it did help me reframe. It was a really useful psychological reframing of everyday events for me anyway. So I found value in it. And that was really surprising to me because as a scientific materialist, I thought spirituality and religion were uh, useless. Well, I mean, I knew they served a purpose in society, but I didn't think they would have any value for me. And so when I did find value in it, I was surprised. And um, honestly, I was dismayed <laughs> and disappointed. Why dismayed? Because I built up this whole idea of, um, my, you know, an identity around uh, this very serious scientist and very smart person and that I didn't need anything to make it through. You know, I didn't need that um, evolutionary mechanism of spirituality <laughs> to make it through. And 
I was very, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, I was aggressively anti-spirituality or anything spiritual and anti-religion. That's before. that's very definitely clear in the book. You make, you make that very clear. And you're like a, many, most people I know of in that part of the scientific community. But it's, it's yeah. as you point out, it's a big community. Not all of the scientific community is in that space. Um, and yes. there have been, but tell us about some of the, the experiments that have been, the uh, Gansfield experiment, for example. Have I got the name right? Yes, I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up, um, I didn't know that people had done research on, they call it psi. Um, I call it psychic phenomena just so everyone understands what it is. But I didn't know that any, anyone had done research on it. I thought that no one had ever looked at it. And then um, I reached out to the Winbridge Institute because Laurelyn Jackson had mentioned that she had done studies with the Winbridge Institute. So I looked them up. They they certified 19 mediums. They had come up with this quintuple, quintuple blinded experiment for mediumship. Um, but I, I spoke to them and one of the co-founders gave me this long reading list and he's like, oh, you think there's been no research done, but this has been studied for over a hundred years from many different countries, many different labs. There's thousands of participants. Um, the findings are significant. And so I took his reading list and went to read about all the studies. And then that was, um, that was a huge scientific turning point for me because there had been so many studies done that there were reviews and there were meta-analyses, which in science means there's been a lot of work done so much so that you could put it together and look at it all at once and be like, okay, what's the evidence for this phenomena? And yeah, they found um, significant findings above chance for things like the, the Gonsfeld, as you mentioned, which is, so they have people in separate, like two people in separate rooms, the rooms, I think in some of the protocols, they're even shielded, electromagnetically shielded. Um, and they'll have one try to send thoughts of something to the other person. And, you know, I think they'll have like a target of like five photographs, and then they randomly choose one photograph, give it to the person, they focus their energy, send their thoughts to the other person. And then with the other person, they ask, you know, which of the targets do you think it was? And then above chance, they'll choose the accurate one. Um, that's just one example. But they did other ones where a computer, you know, will randomly um, select from a deck of cards or something um, of like five pre-selected images and the people will guess, you know, um, which one they're supposed to guess which image they think is going to come next. And again, above chance, they can guess the correct image. Um, and there were, there were so many interesting ones. So a series of experiments from Cornell, from Daryl Bem, um, who one of the, the ones I just loved that I actually thought was the most practical was um, that they split the students into two groups. And we all know if you study a list of words and then you take a test, you're more likely to do better because you remember the words, you've studied it, you've committed it to memory. Um, so what they did, they wanted to, to investigate the effect of time, of retrocausality, like can time go backwards because they've seen that in quantum experiments. So they split the um, students into two groups they had them take um, a memory test of a list of words, and then they they had one of the groups study the words after the test, and then they found that that group did better statistically. So, I mean, that's hard to wrap my mind around. I don't know if that one's been replicated, but there's been so many of these. I mean, I, 
there were like a thousand participants in just that experiment alone. So the evidence was so overwhelming. And a lot of times they used um, protocols that we use in psychology and neuroscience. So it was kind of crazy to be reading these, these protocols. And, um, you know, like I'm very familiar with how to do those analyses and I'm familiar with those statistics. So it was, I mean, I couldn't dismiss it. I was like, either all of our research is wrong or this is right. Um, and a lot of a lot of times, because this is how I would have dismissed it, I would have said, well, their experiments must have not been well controlled. Um, and the thing is, when you go to read them, you find that they're actually better controlled than a lot of our, our own research. Um, yeah. And they're so heavily scrutinized that they have to be. Right. They have uh, bent over backwards in the area of controls because they have to, because they're held to a higher standard by a community that is much more casual about its about controls when it comes to phenomena that can be measured directly. In other words, uh, the trouble with this whole area of research is the phenomena that's being studied cannot be measured directly. We don't have any way of measuring uh, when 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 thoughts are being transferred from someone one person or another, we don't have any way of measuring that. Yeah, yeah. But um, yes, and that's. I mean, well, and that's what, what, wait, I... wait, wait, wait. Let's. I've got to do a break, and oh, okay. my free Dreamlanders love these uh, because they get to watch and listen to fabulous commercials that they almost never react to. But who knows? Maybe this time will be the time. We'll be right back. We're back. We're talking to Mona Shobani, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. Now, as I have hinted at before, there is a dark night of the soul involved in this and an enormously extraordinary relationship the old way of thinking was in her life and it came to her and it taught her she's in the school and that lesson is we're going to be talking about that in the third half hour but right now like many people in the scientific community who get into this stuff she sort of came to the edge of places like uh, oh, to the Stars Academy and the people in that and Jeff Kripal and all of the sort of people on the on the cutting edge of this revolution, they get in touch with people like Mona. And she calls them the people who know. Can you tell us a little bit about the people who know? Yeah, um, they... I think this was when I had my crisis, actually. Like, well, I had multiple crises, as you can uh, tell. There have been um, a few crises. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a little while. <laughs> I had a few, but this was, yeah. I So at this point, when I started speaking to what, who, the people I dubbed, the people who know, I was re, I had re, read the scientific <laughs> studies. I was, um, I had interviewed um, intuitives and psychics and my scientist colleagues and um, some other people. And then, yeah, I stumbled across this group of people who had had firsthand experience. Um, and, you know, I promised all of them 
confidentiality because I wasn't even doing a book. I was just honestly trying to figure out the universe for myself. And so these were just very personal. It was a personal project, very personal interviews. And I wanted people to be open and honest. So, you know, it was all confidential, but they shared personal experiences with me that um, just <laughs> blew my mind. And I, I'd never heard of it. You know, I mean, now I'm familiar and through Jeff Kripal's work and, you know, I'm much more in this world, but I was, it was completely, I was completely blind to it completely as many other scientists and academics I'm sure are, because it is not at all in our purview. We don't come across it in everyday life. I didn't know that these kinds of things happen um, to ordinary people. Uh, and even though there's a lot of shows, you know, on television, it's you tend to brush it off as just entertainment. But when there's people that you're speaking with that you respect and that you get to know over time, and they share these things with you because they, you know, end up trusting you and, and just want to share, um, I mean, you know, I believe them. And... And I think it's like up to that point, I had had my personal experiences. I had spoken to people about their experiences and I had read the scientific studies. Um, but most of that was about psychic phenomena. And then through speaking to these individuals, I became aware of the rest of everything. <laughs> so all of the other phenomena, um, like UAPs and I mean, you name it. So, uh, and at first I remember thinking, oh, I'm not interested in any of that, um, which I found, uh, I, I find other people doing, which is so funny now, because I did that. I thought, oh, that's separate. I don't care about UFOs. I don't want to talk about that. You know, I'm just, I don't even care about that. Um, and yeah, after a, a lot more research and speaking to people realized it's really all connected. Um, it's all one thing. So you can't really ignore <laughs> any part of it. But after those experiences, um, that's when I started to have the crisis because then I, I just, like I said, I tried to stay curious and open-minded and just learn more, just keep reading. And I was like, if it's, no matter how ridiculous something is, just, you know, read it because it was, it got to the point where it's these people, like I said, I knew and I, I trusted were telling me things that were in my worldview impossible, but I wanted to understand, you know, their experience. So I read, I started just reading and, and they would, you know, make recommendations to me of things to read. And I just dug in, um, and became aware of this whole world, <laughs> this whole entire world of, of anomalous, impossible phenomena that is, is actually really, um, as Jeff Kripal says, very typical human experiences that many people encounter over their lifetimes. And we've just been conditioned to uh, not talk about them anymore. <laughs> right, them exactly. And quiet. well, Jeff, Jeff uh, is, uh, he's had very few, he's had one absolutely extraordinary experience that changed his life. And, uh, you know, we're getting to the point where two things are going to happen. We're going to go deep into Mona's experiences and what, what brought her here, why she's sitting here with us instead of, uh, basically in, in, in a lab somewhere, thinking to herself when someone mentions that she mentions in the book she once did, think the, the mentions the word God, they go, she goes, oh, please. Um, you know, sometimes I think God is what we call everything that we don't understand about ourselves. 
Um, mm-hmm. We have a tendency to call that God. Uh, so anyway, free Dreamlanders. It's been great. I have loved being with you and loved having you with me. And I am so sad because I have to say goodbye. Goodbye. Now we're going deep into a life. Why is Mona here? Mona is here because some of the teachers in that school we are all in put her here. Let's talk about your homeland, where you come from, your mama, your grandmother, and all of that stuff. Those are the real teachers. Oh, yes. So tell us. Just let's 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 go with the story first we got to talk about the coffee grounds and your mother yes so yeah in our i'm persian in our culture we have a tradition of using coffee grounds for divination i guess uh, more intuitive readings and my grandmother was skilled in it and she taught my mother so my mother was skilled and this was always going on in our the background of our family parties, and I never paid attention really to it. I didn't believe in it. Um, but my mom started doing readings for me when I was in graduate school because I would go home on the weekends. And I just took notes kind of and noticed that she was more right than she was wrong and that she would be able to intuit really specific details about situations in my life that she had no idea were going on. And just very, very specific, fine, like finite details. And um, they would be things that were meaningful to me. So there was no rhyme and reason to it. So it was really difficult for me, especially as I, my scientific training went on. I kept trying to figure out the readings, but it made no sense. Like there was just like using traditional scientific thinking, it just, there was no way to make sense of it because... The pictures were archetypal, they were symbolic, um, you know, like they, things that were not significant to the situation, but were significant and meaningful to me would show up big. So I tried to, you know, figure it out, but I just, I just couldn't, but I just realized that she was more right than she was wrong. So I, it worked. Uh, I mean, really the bottom line is it worked. I didn't know how it worked, but it worked. And so she, there was an event in 2016 when for five weeks in advance of the event, she kind of warned me and she never really gave me bad news or, you know, tried to avoid it. Um, and this one, she was like, I feel like I have to warn you. I keep seeing it. I, you know, have been seeing it for a while, but I didn't tell you cause I was hoping I was wrong, but I think you're going to get really bad news. And I kept asking her what it was, what does it mean? You know, she kind of like panicked me, but cause I, I knew that these worked. Um, and especially if something kept showing up multiple times, then it was more likely to happen. And so she said she had seen it enough times that she felt like she should warn me. And But she wouldn't tell me what it was. So five weeks go by. I was pretty anxious. <laughs> I kept asking everyone. I was like, do you have bad news? Who has bad news? Just tell me now. Um, and then five weeks later, uh, I got news that one of our professors at USC was murdered by one of the students in our program. And it was somebody um, who had helped me on one of my dissertation experiments. So I knew him and he was lovely. And obviously the whole event was 
horrific. But what really shook me was that my my mom had seen it five five six weeks in advance, and I took, called her when it happened. I said, "I know what it is," and I told her, and she said, "Yes, it was a a death." And um, she's like, "It was very unusual. I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't quite know how to interpret it, but I thought I should warn you." And so that really shook me, you know. And uh, I had been living in cognitive dissonance, I think, <laughs> between my scientific worldview and mindset and these coffee readings. I just kind of they existed alongside each other without interacting. Um, and this event just really shook my worldview. And I just, I, it kind of scared me. You know, I was like, what is this universe we live in? Um, time must not work the way we do, but what else, what does that mean? What else doesn't work the way that we think it does? Um, it do, you know, is there such thing as fate and destiny? Was this his destiny? Can things change? So I had all these questions, but I didn't do anything about it. I didn't go because I didn't know how to search for it to begin with, but I was also very busy with a new job at the time. So it just upset me greatly, but I didn't do anything about it. Um, but it kind of planted a seed. And then two years later, my mom saw this relationship coming and, you know, it seemed like it was going to be great. Um, and it was, it was okay, but it, it, it ended eventually. Yeah, but and, tell us, it's uh, such a cool story. The eyelash, we're going to talk about eyelashes, folks. Go ahead. Yeah, um, this wasn't that guy, but this was... Oh, this I'm sorry. Guy. We'll talk about eyelashes at some point, though. <laughs> like, this guy's going to be like, I don't have good eyelashes. No, um, I can tell you the eyelashes after this, but so he, um, this guy came, it sounded like it was going to be a positive thing, like that outcome was going to be positive, but then we broke up. So then of course I didn't think that was positive. So then I questioned my mom, you know, I was like, what do you, why were you wrong? <laughs> the coffee's usually right. Um, did something change? And so that was, um, when I got really interested in the mechanics of it and that I was already not, I don't know, this was just one of those life things where I wasn't in a great place. And I think of it as like this, my life is like a stool with legs. And I felt like one by one, this, the legs were knocked out from various things. One was my professor. And then this relationship was like the final leg. And so I, or like my life raft and it just popped. And so I was, yeah, I was, my whole life I've been very optimistic and, um, you know, happy. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm a normal person. I down days, but I've never, I never was depressed, depressed, but this was like, um, the event. It was the dark night of the soul where I just was like, what is the point of living? Like I didn't want to be alive really. I mean, I wasn't suicidal or anything and I was still functioning, you know, I would, but I, but I was so, I felt despair for the first time. I lost hope. Like I didn't even like thinking about the future because I didn't, you know, care. So it was really, really, really dark time. And that, and then being interested in how the coffee worked. So all of that kind of came together. Um, and I just kept thinking if, um, what is the meaning, you know, of life? <laughs> what is the point of doing this? It's really hard. And, um, how, if you can know the future in any capacity, um, does that mean, I guess, to I guess in my mind, I thought maybe that means there's meaning, um, which I guess they're not necessarily related is conflating the two, but in my dark, my darkness, that's kind of how I got curious about, um, I'm interested in knowing. And I also wanted to know for myself that there was going to be a light at the end of this 
tunnel. Like, am I ever going to be happy again? So yeah, I started. Yeah. Um, so I, my, my friends had, um, they had said, one of my friends had gone to this intuitive here in LA and she had turned her away twice because she couldn't read her energy. So she's like, oh, she's really good. She'll turn you away if she can't read you. You should go to her. And this was old me. So I was still like, I'm not going to a psychic. That's ridiculous. And then <laughs> my friends had to be like, uh, your mom reads your coffee every Sunday. <laughs> like, what's the difference? So I thought, <laughs> okay, I went I went to the reading and she was really good. I mean, she <laughs> it was, and I had never been to like actual reading. So it was, it was weird. And she was just really incredibly accurate about things from my past too. Um, and it was like, she pulled like the deepest, darkest thoughts I was having at that moment and pulled them out, which would, they would have never been true for me at any other time in my life. And so it just felt very accurate, but my friends and I, they were kind of like, you know, I think everyone, cause we grow up in this mainstream Western culture are like, do I believe, do I not believe? Um, you know, you're kind of like never sure. So my right. friends, even though they the belief yeah. issue is huge. It, it both helps us and holds us back. It holds us yeah. back because it suppresses our ability to notice things. It helps us because it also suppresses our, our credulity and makes us skeptical in good ways. So it's a, it's a real yeah. double-edged sword. Listen, uh, th this intuitive, I want to go back to the coffee readings because we didn't really explain that tradition at all. And uh, okay. it, you, now you referred to them as Armenian coffee readings. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the background and how your mother and grandmother came to do them and, and how do they work? Or, or I should say, what's the process? Because I know we already don't know how they work. <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, no, so I, you know, I'm actually not sure. This is, I should ask my mom. I don't actually know how my grandmother learned, but I'm assuming it was from someone in our family. Um, I think probably her mother, that's usually how it's passed down. Um, but the way that they work is this coffee is like, it's a little thicker than normal coffee. It has, I think it has garbanzo beans like ground in with it. Um, and you, you make it and you don't filter it. So you just pour it straight into the cup. So the the grounds are in there. You drink the coffee and then you, you don't drink the grounds at the bottom. Cause that would be gross. Cause it's very sludgy. Um, and then you put, I actually have, I actually made one in the morning cause I was taking a picture I could show you, but, um, it's, it's sludgy. And then you flip the cup over and the, gr the ground kind of like dribble down into the, the little, um, teacup plate. I don't know what it's called. And then, um, you separate them, you let it dry. And then the reader will, will look and see what images um pop out to them and my mom says she like she doesn't see it as a talent like um like intuitive reading um she lit she sees it as a skill like she'll literally look and see the picture she'll point them out to you sometimes you can see them sometimes they're really obvious um and then she says she tries to find stories between the pictures and that's how uh she interprets it and then there's the cup is there's different parts of it. So, um, do you want me to grab it? So wait, just show it yeah, to you. Yeah, please do. Please do. Okay. So we paused it for a moment and Mona went and got the cup. So show us. Yeah. So let me see it. Okay, yeah. So we can see it beautifully. It, yeah. 
whoops, I'm moving it. That's the other way. Okay. So see how the coffee like comes to one side kind of? So yeah. that's what my mom would say. It's like in your house. So any of the images like there are things that are like really relevant to you um, and going on in your life. And so then when you move to like, you know, the outside, oh, sorry, this way, like this way or all the way on the other side, things that are like on the periphery, then she would say those are outside your house. So it would be like, and sometimes if you have like a workplace, it'll be a whole separate like area. And then at the very bottom, very, very bottom, that part is like your kind of like your heart, like your, your internal, like it's, internal it's sort of like, sort um, of like palm reading in a way or tea leaves. It, it's slightly different from tea leaves actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how tea leaves are read, but, um, probably very similar. Yeah. I had a, yeah. um, a lady in my life, a black lady who could read tea leaves when I was a boy. And of course I was a little boy. And so she may have been capable of deceiving me, but my tea leaves always involved trouble if I was bad. And then I was bad and there was trouble. So she was almost always right. <laughs> any case. In any case, uh, this is fascinating. And, and, um, you, and your mother and just images, intuits it, or there, is there a specific, besides the in the house, out of the house, above the house? She, this is all a tradition, yeah. isn't it? Yes, it's, um, they're symbolic, so, and it's archetypal. So what happens is she'll see a lot of times animals, with, um, so she'll be like, oh, there's a turtle. Um, so something is developing really slowly in your life. Or if there's um, a snake, it can indicate, you know, something like an enemy um, <clears throat> that will like sneak up on you because of the way that a snake moves um, and sneaks up on its prey. So it's that kind of thing, or like a tiger or a cat, you know, how they can kind of like get angry quickly and, and attack you. So it's archetypal or kind of symbolic in that way. So sometimes um, those sometimes that those would just be characteristics about a person, but, um, to get back to the eyelashes, sometimes she could see details about actual people that were really, um, specific. So I dated this guy in, um, just in my twenties. Um, and he had, I never told anyone this. It wasn't a very distinctive feature that other people noticed about him, but I loved his eyelashes. They were very long and they were just very nice. And, um, and then my mom would read my cup and she didn't know I was dating anyone. I didn't even tell her. Um, and you know, she would always see this guy like for the duration that we were dating and she would say, oh, and I see a guy in your life and he has really long eyelashes. And it was really weird because the eyelashes were significant and meaningful to me, but not to anybody else. And I never said it out loud. I never told my friends like, oh, you know, he has really <laughs> nice eyelashes. Like um, it wasn't, it was just a private thought. It was a private, meaningful thing for me. And, and it showed up in the coffee. And that's, um, that was one of those moments where I was like, this is really, really, really weird. <laughs> like, and I don't know how it's working. But, uh, right, because you, you know, it can't be true, and yet it is. And then later, 
What would you say precipitated? It was more than anything the the prediction of the murder, wasn't it? That was what you. That's what changed your life. Is that true? That event. Yeah. What? I which? What? Was... Because she had a huge role in 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 changing your worldview. And yeah, it, t- tell us about. What the my impression from the book is that the biggest event was the prediction of the horrible news, and then the appearance of the murder in your life, and then you you were convinced that there was something else going on. Yeah, um, that event definitely um, confirmed to a stronger degree that the coffee's. Uh, worked, although it's not just that. Obviously, there had been like ten years of <laughs> coffee readings, but that one was very significant, um, and it affected me the most. I think emotionally, you know, when I think of meaningful moments, it's it's ones that are like emotional for us that we respond to um, physiologically, um, you know, as well as mentally. And so, I think that one was a very strong turning point because you know the eyelashes, like they're all cute stories and. Um, <laughs> They're, they're meaningful to you in the moment, but you know, you, you jot it down and you go on living your life. And then, so it takes something like that, like a big event like that, um, to really kind of shake you and, and be like, look, like, look at this, um, how, how strange, what a strange universe, like how can something like that show up in a coffee, in coffee grounds? And now where to go with this, because you've. You've begun to touch on spirituality and, in particular, Buddhism. I think that the murder was one of the most definitive um, predictions that she made that really shook me. It was very emotional. So, uh, of course, there had been 10 years plus readings before that that really had convinced me. But this one was just so um, profound um, that, yeah, it really shook me. I mean, it really, uh, made me think there's something going on here. Um, you know, she's, she's usually, like, she was already usually right, but this one was, um, you know, another level. And it, I think it, because it was more of like a life death issue, it made me really, uh, think about life, um, in this universe. I think that, that kind of triggered that thought process of like, well, well, what is this and how could she have foreseen the ending of someone's life um, through this kind of silly method, you know, that our Western culture pays absolutely no attention to. Um, and, it, and it really made me think about time and our models, uh, our scientific models of space and time and physics and biology and everything, and just kind of wonder if we're missing something like this, what else are we missing? You talked briefly about mediumship and mediums. Um, I've mm-hmm. recently did, did a show with a medium called Stuart Alexander, and I personally attended a seance with, with Mr. Alexander and his his home group, as they're called, that was so brain-bending that it changed my entire worldview even now. Tell us what you think about mediums and mediumship. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that the, the evidence, um, 
I, I, th I always think of it in two ways now. Um, if there's scientific studies, which there are, but I actually don't even care about that anymore because I feel like this kind of phenomenon is hard to study with the scientific with the scientific method we use. Um, but the Winbridge Center, you know, has has done those quintuple blind studies, as I mentioned, showing that mediums can receive um, accurate information. Um, yeah, I mean, I I I guess I'm still trying to figure all of it out, but. And I, I kind of think of it like I had an Excel spreadsheet that was my worldview and I had locked it before. And now I've, you know, I was like, no more information. <laughs> this is my worldview. And then I've opened it and now I just keep adding data to it um, and updating it. And I never want to close it again. So I'm sure it could change, but I sort of view, um, you know, once I found the, the philosophies or on um, that consciousness could be the fundamental, like whatever that means, we don't even know what consciousness is, but if something like that is um, the foundation of reality, like to me, that makes uh, a lot more sense. Um, not materially and physically, but just to try to explain and accommodate these other data sets of these anomalous unexplained stuff, such as mediumship. Um, Cause you know, it's kind of like, maybe there is disembodied consciousness. So, what do we know? <laughs> but there does seem to be something going on. Yes. Um, some people are more fine-tuned to receiving that extra information, whatever it is. The, um, the suggestion that pre pre uh, the ability to prophesy and to predict the future is really very strange on the one hand. On the other hand, we do know that there appears to be... when when something is is detected, the the brain begins to respond to it slightly before it, it's detected, just by a few milliseconds. And we don't really know whether that's a uh, neurological phenomenon or that the mind is, or the brain rather, is not entirely seated in time, that it actually is moves a little bit ahead of time. Uh, and do you think that this is all predestined? In other words, are we playing games here? Or is there something, is novel experience possible? Well, I would like someone to tell me that. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> I, me too. Well, I asked you just to see what you might think at, based on what you've learned so far. Um, well, I've what I keep hearing from multiple sources is that there's both free will and then both and also things that are predetermined. And, you know, of course that doesn't make any sense to my brain. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I don't really know, but it's, um, that's kind of, you know, I still get intuitive readings and I'm still really interested to see that they pick up on similar things and there's, Things that, you know, I've been doing this for years now is this kind of pseudo self experiment and with my friends also. Um, and it is interesting, like the, the things that can be picked up years, years in advance that kind of make you think or wonder, um, yeah, was that like some sort of plan? Um, was that supposed, like it had to happen? Like that was some sort of fate point or destiny point that that you, there was no way around it. Um, so, I mean, that is the question. If any of your listeners know, please email me. I guess I, I would like to know the answer. 
<laughs> but you know, in 1985, I had a terrifying vision of the world on fire. And in 1983, he wrote a book called Nature's End that is about that also. And now it's happening. So th yeah. that happens. I mean, we do have these precognitive things. Uh, and it, it, I would think that the summer of 2023 is going to be a summer of fire big time because the soils are drying out more and more all over the planet. And when that happens, even a lightning strike into the soil if there's no rain involved, can set a fire because the, the roots catch fire. So it's a really hairy, difficult, dangerous time. Um, but now let's, let's look through. I want to shift gears, if I may, because we haven't talked about spirituality. And my impression from um, proof of spiritual phenomena is that you know something is out there and you're, you're exploring how to address it can you can you give us some ideas about where you're going with your own spirituality at this point in your life? Yeah, um, you know, uh, so I I liked that framework that I write about in the book. Like I said, I I thought it was a very good way for me to psychologically reframe my life, my day to day life, my everyday life's events. It's been enormously helpful for me. So I, I like it. I, <laughs> I think that there's, I think it's interesting. Um, what I was trying to get out in the book too, is like, I think it's really fascinating that through these different modalities, like through psychics, through passive regression, through NDEs, that you sometimes get these similar stories and similar, similar descriptions. Um, although sometimes it's cultural uh, context comes into play. Um, but the fact that there's ever any similarity um, <laughs> or that people report these spiritual frameworks that they don't believe in or that are not part of their culture, I mean, to me, just as a scientist, that's really odd and interesting. Um, that was part of what, why I was so interested, like for many lives, many masters, um, his Catholic patient was explaining the spiritual framework to his, her atheist um, Jewish, you know, psychiatrist. Right. And so I, I think that that's, that's really interesting. I mean, even if you want to look at it from physicalist biological standpoint, is that a story that got coded in us? I mean, it, you know, it doesn't make sense. So I, I just think it's a really fascinating, I still think it's such a fascinating phenomenon to me since I'm still sort of lean towards having both types of evidence, personal and something else, <laughs> if not scientific. But um, I guess I, I'm, I, I kind of lean towards, you know, again, like I said, in my Excel spreadsheet, the most data there is around this spiritual framework, but obviously that's the one I've been pursuing. <laughs> so um, I, I'm sure if I spent time, who knows, maybe I could be convinced to be a Catholic or something doubtful, but you never know. Um, so to me that, I lean towards that because I feel like in some ways there's like evidence for it. Um, and for me, so, you know, and of course I, I don't think I am very much like you can't force anybody to believe anything. No. And so, yeah. Um, um, I, the other, I was some, thinking, something is going wrong here with the camera. Um, let me, we're going to have to put it on pause. I'm going to have to try to fix this somehow. Well, folks, we're about to wind up. Uh, there's been some glitches, of course. It's Dreamland, the land of glitches. 
we have uh, any time we begin to talk about the dead and spirituality, the glitches start, and, and all of a sudden, the mm -hmm. there's a second camera on this computer, a FaceTime camera, and it turned on, and it took over. <laughs> it oh didn't, my God. And 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 it's like it's saying, okay, you know, we don't want you to talk about that. And of course, whenever I get the feeling that there's some unknown presence that doesn't want me to talk about something, that's what I want to talk about. So, anyway, we're we're gonna we're gonna we sort of had an interruption, and uh, because of my mysterious ghostly appearance on the other camera. Now, where are you going with your own spirituality, do you think? Uh, you, 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 are you... Will you ever pray? Do you pray now? Oh, um, <clears throat> yes, I, <laughs> I do. It's so funny. I'm still... Um, I still don't like the words pray, prayer, God. I still have an aversion to them. Like I have such a conditioning. Me too. Um, no, I agree with you completely. I, I, as I said earlier, God is what we call all that we don't understand about ourselves. And I'm, I don't yeah. know what people, it means when people pray to whom. <laughs> yeah. I, so I don't, yeah. So I think of it as the universe. I was also going to say this. Sometimes I wonder if, the universe and you know it's just a wonder i have i guess if the universe gives you what you like it kind of reflects back to you what you believe um or what you uh, like if it's it's if it's a participatory universe um and you believe in something does it bring more of that into your awareness um and sometimes i just wonder about that so as i mentioned i i believe in the spiritual framework but it, it could be just because that's what's been mirrored to me um and so when i when i the reason i i don't think of it as praying i think of it as maybe wishing um and it's me kind of wishing to the universe um to reflect back to me my wishes is how i think of it to reflect back to me my wishes. And that, that's a great way. We've come to the end of our time together, Mona, and it has been a delight and a fascinating experience. Uh, let me ask you, does your mother still do the tea, the coffee readings for you? Yeah, yeah, she still does them for me. I get them every week. <laughs> and she lives yeah. live here in the States? or? Yes. Yeah, I live in Los Angeles. No, no. Does she live here as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. She lives here. She okay, lives in so LA. you're all you're, you're not you're not involved with Iran now, and that's probably just as well. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us. The book is Proof of Spiritual Phenomena: uh, A Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe. Mona's website is monasobaniphd.com, S-O-B-H-A-N-I. It's been a pleasure to have you with us on Dreamland. And if you get another book out there, we definitely want to be the first to know. 
Oh, thank you. The pleasure's been mine. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>